Hi, and welcome to LeechFest, a medical history podcast where we remember to practice washing our hands and using our gas masks, because today we're talking about bioweaponry. What are they? How bad are they? And why shouldn't French soldiers eat mutton from Argentina? All of these questions and more we will answer today. I'm Mia. And I'm Salem. <laughs> and before we dig into all of that, how have you been? Have you drunk from any infested wells lately? I don't think so. Good. Um, not Hopping. to my knowledge, no. Um, I've been okay. I started a new course on bioinformatics. It's been very intense, mm-hmm. so I've been really busy with that. Um, we've been streaming. That's a piece of new information yes. on the in the podcast um, sphere. New sphere. Yeah. We started streaming. We're playing Resident Evil. And if yeah. you just love our voices and also <laughs> hunting down weird demonic creatures, mm-hmm. you can listen to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you you also get to like hang out with us in the chat and and talk to us. Um. So yeah, we've been playing Resident Evil and GeoGuessr, and that's been a fun addition. To my evenings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's about it. How have you been? I've been good. I've been working on my upcoming video. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, at time of recording, the longest video I have ever made. Really? Uh, it's, it has a longer script than the previous longest video, which was an hour and like two minutes or something like that. So this one is looking to be like an hour 20. <laughs> Slowly it's gonna moving, be fun. Slowly moving into a free hour feature film territory. People talk a lot of crap on YouTube about like long video formats are dead. It's all about TikToks and short video formats. But that's like not at all true because mm. short videos make no money. Mm-hmm. And the, the the place where the money is, and clearly where people like want to invest their time, is watching eight hour YouTube videos about like some guy talking about Resident Evil in mm-hmm. like minute detail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That stuff gets clicks. Yeah, that's yeah. what people really. I mean, want to I say. definitely like that stuff. I listen to and watch video essays all the time. So, you know, yeah. If if nobody else will watch them, I will watch them. Right. Like if TikTok is coming for like YouTube's long format throne, they're not doing a great job so no, far. No. <laughs> uh, but enough about us. Yes. Today we're talking about bio-warfare, like you mentioned mm-hmm. in the intro. But before we do that... Yes, before we wade into the cholera-infected water of this episode, we want to thank our patrons for supporting this episode. Patrons get early access to episodes, get to see our notes, and they also get to watch a special video version of the podcast that has bloopers and other like special content in it that doesn't make it into the audio version. You can also get a shout-out in the middle of our episodes. And this time, we want to thank Joshua Analik. Thank you, Joshua Analik. Don't drink the infested water, Joshua. (laughs) And with all of that said, how about we explore the topic of today's episode? Perhaps you can tell us what bioweaponry even is. All right, so let's talk about what biological warfare is. So put simply, it's the use of biotoxins or infectious agents with the intent to kill or harm humans, animals or plants, typically as an act of war. Biological weapons then can be bacteria, fungi, viruses, or even insects, which is specifically called entomological weapons. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, I know. We uh, Initially, we wanted to kind of include insects in this mm-hmm. episode, but I feel like it's so interesting on its own. I kind of want to 
set it aside maybe for a future for a future episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but insects can be used as a bioweapon. Mm. So, we're gonna mention it like a teeny bit in this episode, mm. I think, just because it comes up. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a full episode on what do you call it? On, Ent- entomological warfare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a mouthful. Yeah. So bioweapons are divided in three categories depending on their risk to national security. And this is specific to the United States, but most countries have some sort of system that's similar. So category A agents are the highest priority. These agents can be transmitted from person to person and can result in high mortality. Examples of category A agents are anthrax, plague, smallpox, tularemia, and a few viruses which can cause hemorrhagic fever like Ebola. Um, oh, fun. Yeah. Category B agents are moderately easy to disseminate and result in low mortality and include glanders, which we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. brucellosis, typhus, and the ricin toxin. I heard a lot about ricin, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not related to ricin. <laughs> no. Category C are emerging pathogens that could be engineered for mass dissemination in the future and include the Nipah virus and the Hantavirus. And these are a bit more obscure, so they're not like super high priority, but they're out there. Mm -hmm. As far as the legality of biological warfare, we will talk about it later on. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, as you probably know, um, it is banned under international humanitarian law and it is uh, considered a war crime. So... You know, you're not allowed to use it. <laughs> yeah, don't. If if biological weapon, don't. So now that we know what they are, and it's you know, it's a very, very quick, very, mm. uh, very short and sweet mm. intro. And it's also like a vague category, like almost by design, right? Because like anything that's sort of like biological. Yeah, anything that's alive plus viruses can be yeah. used as a biological weapon. I love that. That's a like a caveat. Alive. Yeah. And, and viruses. viruses, yeah. Uh, so now that we know what they are, let's talk a little bit about the history of mm. them. This is a, a medical history podcast, so yeah. we have to talk about the history. So um, contagious diseases and biological weapons have been recognized for their potential to weaken adversaries as early as the 14th century BC. The first documented example of biological warfare relates to the Hittites. Hi- Hittites. The Hittites, I believe. <laughs> the Hittites. The Hittites. Hittites. The Hittites. The Hittites. The Hittites, which were an ancient Anatolian people. Yes. That's modern day Turkey. Yes. So the Hittites would send their enemies rams infected with tularemia, which is a zoonotic disease causing skin ulcers, fever, and sepsis. In the 4th century BC, Scythian archers. Scythian. Scythian? Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Ancient history flex. Yes, the, the, the Hittites and the, Scythian, and the Scythians. In the 4th century BC, Scythians, archers, which um, would, would be uh, in, in what is modern day Iran, would dip their arrows in a mixture of decomposing adders, which is a type of snake, Fun. and human blood. And this mixture is believed to have contained a blend of bacteria, including the tetanus bacteria, as well as snake venom. Yeah. That's awful. It was very effective. (laughs) Um, Just really poisoned arrows from, like, Skyrim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In more modern times, one of the most well-known examples of biological warfare, and you probably have heard about this because it's a very famous example, happened in 1347 when Mongol forces were said to have catapulted plague-infested bodies over the walls into the Black Seaport of Kaffa, what is now Crimea. Um, I was going to say Ukraine, but 
It's a little bit controversial. It's a little bit controversial. And at time of recording... The situation is rapidly changing. At the time this video comes out... This This might not be Ukraine no more. This might not be... (laughs) It might not be as controversial or disputed anymore. Mm Because one side may have won. We're living in exciting times. Mm-hmm. I also like that you re- that you reference this as more modern times in the 1300s. Well, yeah. Well, I was talking yeah. about antiquity, so I yeah. guess it's it's more modern. It is than more antiquity. modern. You're not wrong. Yeah. And this, uh, when the Mongols did this, not only did it work very well to sort of like demoralize the Portokafa, if I remember correctly, but also... But also, uh, because this Black Sea port was a Genoese trade center, mm-hmm. it is believed that the ships returning to Italy from the port actually carried the plague and therefore started the Black Death yeah. epidemic, mm-hmm. which, again, killed around 25 mil- million people. <laughs> Um, this <laughs> remains a controversial theory because the epistemology of the epidemic is complex and multifactorial. So it's kind of like you know, a lot of we people... We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. Bad. And it's kind of hard to believe that this single event, you know, actually started the epidemic. It's said mm. to have come from different places. But this, this technique of catapulting diseased cadavers over sieged walls has been a very popular war method mm-hmm. over the ages, yeah. uh, uh, beginning with the siege of the bohemian city of Karolstein by Lithuanian troops in 14, 1422 to the siege of the Swedish army in Estonia in 1710 by the Russians. Yeah. Do you know a lot about that? I don't know a lot about that. Do but they I, teach you in school about that? They teach us in school, because I, I don't think that that turned out very great for the Swedes. No. So that's not really what they tell us about. They tell us about all of the uh, the time when we conquered Poland and marched almost all the way to Moscow and beat the Russians a couple of times, mm-hmm. being defeated so by plague victims. So they tell victims. you about victories. They don't tell you about no, the defeats. Not really, gotcha. unfortunately. But I'm not surprised that people would do this because, like, it's a very effective weapon, even mm-hmm. if it doesn't sort of like work in a, as a in a biological way, because like. It's going to ruin your morale yeah, the, to just see like a I body can... decomposing, by the way, just mm-hmm. splat on the ground. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, the, the worst part, I think. Just just be, like being rained on with decomposing like, just bodies. Just guts, blood, yeah. pus, like all of that stuff. But I do think it was pretty effective. Also. Oh, it must have been. Yeah, yeah. And it's also a great way to dispose of your dead body. Yeah. It keep the, you, keeps the camp clean. Yeah, you don't have to burn them. You don't have to bury them. Just, just throw them over. Just chuck them over. So the last example that I want to talk about is um, a very interesting example that is often brought up, and that is the use of smallpox against Native Americans by European colonizers. Mm. It's often said that the colonizers would sell or gift clothes, linens, and blankets that had been used by smallpox patients to Native Americans. One guy named Captain Equier of the British forces Um, actually noted in his journal after offering smallpox blankets to the natives. And he says, I hope that it will have the desired effect. (laughs) However, in the light of contemporary knowledge, it is actually kind of doubtful whether this technique was successful as smallpox transmission via blankets and linens is pretty limited. Mm. Smallpox gets transmitted much more easily via respiratory pathways. And it did. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, Native Americans were exposed to smallpox and like a huge variety of other infectious illnesses, including bubonic plague, cholera, diphtheria, malaria, and the selection of STIs, with the exception of syphilis. (laughs) But um, those were just unknowingly carried and passed over. So I just wanted to bring up this example because it's often... 
um, brought up, like in the context of biological warfare, but it is controversial. And yeah. also it's an example that illustrates how difficult it is to distinguish between biological warfare and naturally occurring epidemics. Yeah, because this is also... But we, we know that people tried. Like this guy, they did. This guy tried. They did. But the, the question is more like... Was it successful? Was it successful? Yeah. Was the, like, and was it, was it done know. on a large scale? Yeah, and I think that's something that I've also discovered while researching this episode, that even though like quite a number of people have tried biological warfare, mm-hmm. um, like widespread success has been like limited kind of controversial it's not like are you still referring to to the native american example i'm referring to many examples mm-hmm. like they're like chucking bodies over a siege wall seems to be kind of effective but like as a sort of like standardized weapon uh success has you know been mm-hmm. been mixed to That's say fair. the least mm-hmm. as opposed to like a gun which if you hit works every time yeah if it hits it hits like yeah yeah, yeah fair yeah yeah there's a lot of difficulties involved with um biological warfare which i guess it's a good thing but it's you know there's a lot of steps involved in the process and it it really depends on what kind of biological vector you're using Mm -hmm. um but like what you're targeting yeah what what you're targeting but you have to you know you have to engineer it you have to grow it you have to Mm -hmm. distribute it like it's especially in more modern like more modern uh examples of biological warfare it can be pretty difficult difficult actually to to increase that and like apply it on a large scale. And it's also kind of risky, right? Because, like, you may infect the enemy, but then if you infect the enemy with something that's, like, actually effective against the enemy, it may come back and bite you in the ass yeah. as well. Yeah, true. It's kind of... Again, guns are advantageous here because you, the bullet goes away from you. <laughs> so you mentioned the complexities and sort of, like, targeting vectors and stuff like that, and that's a great point uh, because I'm going to mention some examples myself, starting, of course, with the Great Wars as we call them, the First and the Second World War. While the front lines of the war would sometimes be exposed to innovations of chemical warfare, that's something we could probably make an episode about sometime in the future, uh, far behind enemy lines, secret spies would operate a biological war to undermine the enemy as much as possible. Biological warfare in the First World War was mostly directed at disrupting the enemy's supply line rather than directly killing anyone, basically. The German Empire uh, were sort of on on the forefront of the biological warfare game, and they developed something called anti-agricultural biological warfare. I feel like this is where the insects could come in very easily. You'd think so, but actually not. Hmm. But I'll, I'll get to that. This program was developed by a man called Rudolf Nadolny, who was a member of the German general staff and specialized in unconventional warfare. His job was to distribute... He's not like the other boys. He's not like the other boys. I have unconventional warfare. General Ludendorff over there. He talks about armored panzers. I, on the other hand, I have viruses, bacteria, perhaps some fungi. Yes. Mein Kaiser, I shall distribute the fungus. They shall... Our enemies will flee in terror. Okay. All right. All right. What on earth is happening? His job was to distribute pouches with couriers containing various biological agents to saboteurs all throughout Europe in the hopes of weakening the enemy, mostly the Russian Empire. His saboteurs would do the following. In Finland, saboteurs who would be mounted on reindeer placed ampules of anthrax in stables of Russian horses. This happened around 1916. Most of the biological warfare, like, 
game happened like in the six, 1916 and 1917, and it wasn't really a mass scale operation here. So like I'm mentioning individual actions and that's basically all that happened. So I have a question. How yes. do, how does Amphrax work? Like you, you place the amples in the stables and then what? I think they spread it like in the food of the horses. Oh, the horses eat it, okay, they become okay. sick. All right, all right. Uh, and then you can't use the horses in battle Okay, anymore. okay, okay, I see. Mm -hmm. Anthrax <clears throat> was also supplied to German military attaches in Bucharest, as was Glanders, which was employed against livestock destined for allied service, helping to disrupt the food supply and killing horses heading for Russia. Uh, Romania was actually neutral in this war, but, you know, fuck those farmers, I guess. <laughs> they're just doing a business selling to, I mean, okay, sure, they're selling to the Allied powers, but at the same time, come on, they really hate those horses, too. Around the same time, a spy for the Germans in the US, a Dr. Anton Dilger, set up a secret lab in his sister's basement to develop glanders, which were used to infect livestock collection points within the US. He was actually sent out by that German general guy. He was like <laughs> They're all taking connected. orders from this. As something we've we've learned in all of these episodes <laughs> is all these guys are connected. They all have a network and they he, all communicate. He, like, he specifically worked for him, actually. They conspire. Yeah, they conspire. They love to conspire. Um, also, can we talk about a secret lab in his sister's basement? I know. He just set up a chemical lab in his sister's was, basement. Did he live there too? Or was no. No. <laughs> He had his own place. Why didn't he have his lab in his own house? From, I, okay, so I actually tried to find some information about this. I can't find like a solid reason for it. Either the sister was like, just didn't know what he was doing there, or he didn't have a basement of his own. Or maybe but he, he needed like a space to sort of like do his chemical. Maybe like, he didn't want stuff. to like dirty his his own air in his own house with like chemi chemical smells. Okay, so but he's he, still working in this basement, and it's like... I know, but you know, when you go home, you want your home to be like clean and nice and not smell like fucking anthrax or whatever no, she no. was developing. <laughs> There's no glanders in my house. Yeah. That's, uh, that's so interesting. To be fair, it was in the basement of a house that his sister owned. It is a bit unclear if this sister actually lived in that house, mm -hmm. so... Okay. Well, maybe, I don't know. maybe that's actually, like, safer. You know, you shouldn't be... You should, if you can avoid living in a house where yeah. somebody's developing bioweapons, <laughs> You're growing you probably should, you know? Yeah. Uh, spies in Argentina would do the exact same thing, and they would try to ruin wheat harvest mm -hmm. uh, using a destructive fungus. Mm -hmm. They would also try to infect sheep uh, with anthrax, uh, sheep that were heading towards France, hence why a lot of French soldiers occasionally were warned, like, hey, maybe don't eat Argentinian mutton, because it may be infected by German spy anthrax. Which is just the weird cockamamie spy thriller bullshit <laughs> of what happened here. By the way, almost no one died. Like, not a person. Just sheep, wheat, mm. horses, and cows. Well, I guess they knew to not eat that stuff. I suppose it's, yeah. uh, that's why they didn't die. And they did <laughs> they a lot of testing. And yeah, they were well informed. But they could have. Do you know what um, what what fungus they used I, for the? Because I'm thinking it could I, be yeah. ergot. I tried to look this up. It's not <clears> ergot. <throat> it was something that was more because ergot takes a long time to sort of like develop and like it, it really needs to sort of the the crops need to rot mm -hmm. and then ergot comes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but they needed to make crops rot in the first place. Okay. But I can't find exactly what type of fungus it was, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Tried looking this up. There's like a book from 2002 that just talks about like the advent of bacteriological warfare. <laughs> um, 
and it doesn't mention it. Mm. It just like says a fungus. Um, I should also mention that Germany, while being on the forefront of doing this type of warfare, also fell victim to it as well. Allied spies would do the exact same thing to them in Germany and in Switzerland. Uh, so this was a biological warfare, mostly against horses. However, this is a good example of how the First World War was mostly a war of supply lines and attrition, being able to feed your side better than the other side. And while the biological warfare it didn't have a huge impact on the like overall scale of the war, but when it comes to total war, this was seen as a cheap, effective thing to mm. do in addition to like everything else that you're doing. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, it, it seems like it would be a cheaper thing to to deploy as opposed to like like weaponry, like, uh, yeah. you know, physical weaponry. You know? Conventional weaponry. <clears throat> yeah. Conventional weaponry. And especially since you can't really, like, you can't invade Argentina when the war is happening, like, in Germany. Like, mm -hmm. the Germans can't, like, invade Argentina and take their food supply, but, but they can sort of, like, reduce their effectiveness by, like, 5% or whatever. Mm -hmm. And if they do this in many areas of the world, along with, like, other types of warfare... You know, the idea is that it would sort of slowly shift the balance just a tiny bit. Mm -hmm. And, that's and all sometimes you really that tipping point is, is what you need. Exactly. Yep. Like, it's uh, when it comes to war of attrition, it really is just using every means available to you. But that was World War One, And after World War One, the world met for the Geneva Conventions once again, talking about a lot of things that happened in the First World War, including a ban on bacteriological weapons, as they called it. They added this to... Make sure they're like, hey, maybe don't poison our crop supply. Like, it didn't hurt that much. Let's not do it again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everyone just coming along to agree, like, hey, let's, let's not do this. This sucks. However, the new rules said nothing about experimentation, production, storage, or transfer. Uh, so every single nation still did it, but they were just like, you're not allowed to use it. But you're, we keep it for later. <laughs> you're allowed to keep it, and you're allowed to experiment and do whatever you want with mm -hmm. it. Just don't use it. <laughs> just yet. Just yet. Or if you do, make sure they don't find out about it. <laughs> that's that's going to come up in my in my third segment. Um, but now we move on to World War II. And this is where things really kick into high gear. Because in the first war, there's at least some semblance of using rules, mostly sticking to agricultural sabotage, not so much for the second. Especially when it comes to the Japanese Empire. I've already mentioned Unit 731 during our episode on space medicine and human experimentation, so if you listen to that one, you know this is going to be kind of gruesome. Unit 731 was the Chemical and Biological Warfare Research Unit for the Imperial Japanese Army, and was notorious for the sheer amount of war crimes committed. You may know that before the US was at war with Japan, and before Germany invaded Poland, the Japanese military was already involved in a full-scale invasion of mainland China. Uh, to give some context to this, China didn't really exist at this time, and I'm allowed to say China this time because we're actually talking about China, but China was going through a moment where <laughs> there, there is, there's communist China headed by Mao, who, who is in charge of like five people at this point, there's the Republic of China uh, headed by Chiang Kai-shek, there's like four warlords that are headed by like their own general, um, Manchuria has already like a control of the Japanese, so it's like... China doesn't exist. It's like a weird conglomeration of warlord and puppet states and everything's mm -hmm. chaotic. Mm -hmm. That's what they're invading. To aid this invasion, Unit 731 would breed fleas infected with plague that they would intentionally release into the Chinese mainland. These were spread by low-flying airplanes upon Chinese cities, and this killed tens of thousands of people with bubonic plague epidemics. One expedition to Nanking involved spreading typhoid and Paratyphoid germs into the wells 
as well as infusing it into food parcels that would be dropped as humanitarian aid to the locals. That's low. And like, if you know anything about the Japanese invasion of Nanking, this is like not even on the top 10 worst things that they did there. Yeah, no, I'm sure, but still. I, I don't know super much like the details, mm-hmm. but this seems very low. It's also very low for a reason because like they like like other powers in the area would sometimes drop actual humanitarian yeah, aid. Yeah. So you never you don't know what and you're gonna get. Like suddenly you get you can't food trust or that. do you get like typhoid fever? Exactly. Or paratyphoid. I don't even know what that is. Additionally, they would be ruthless in their testing, and at least eleven Chinese cities would fall victim to various experiments which eventually led to the development of the defoliation bacilli bomb. Defoliation? That's what it's called. Basically, it's a cocktail of various deadly pathogens that could be spread easily by oncoming Japanese troops. They would include anthrax, plague, typhoid, dysentery, botulism, cholera, and many, many more. Um, Basically, this was a jar, a porcelain jar, (laughs) that they would just, like, put a lot of, like... um, ampules in that would like explode in an aerosol mm-hmm. um and that they would they would also drop these like out of out of planes so easily shatter and then easily you just get like a <clears throat> huge cocktail of eight different deadly diseases at the same time so defoliation it's like the removal of leaves and above ground plant material and i think if i'm not wrong i think that they're calling it defoliation because this mixture of deadly pathogens would... Probably cut down cut. like every leaf in the area. But too. I don't think it's about leaves. I think they're referring to humans. I think that they're referring to basically like destroying the organic material that is humans. Maybe. It's very possible. <laughs> I just... I've, it's a very weird thing to name it. I mean, it sounds also like weirdly ruthless that they would yeah. do that. But at the same time, like when they tested these on cities... Like, researchers were, like, like they would test various, like, strains of diseases to find the most deadly one. And when they found that paratyphoid is, like, one of the worst ones that they could find, they were super happy and had a party. <laughs> Kill 10,000 extra more people today. Party. The Japanese weren't alone, though, in the Second World War. The British Empire also developed biological weapons, mostly industrial production and testing of anthrax. When war seemed to come closer, the Ministry of Supply began a biological weapons program which they'd test on the Scottish island of Grunyard, otherwise known as Anthrax Island. The island remained infested for 48 years and is still off limits, although today the, the, it's not infested with anthrax anymore. Mm-hmm. People think it is, it's not actually, it's gone. It's Why is fine. it still off limits then? Uh, like, just in case, <laughs> I think. But it's also like military land, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I remember correctly. There's a Tom Scott video about this. So it's either that it's owned by the military or it's actually like privately owned now. So it's just off limits just because it's private property. <laughs> either way, it's still like colloquially known as oh, Anthrax Island. Island. Uh, Britain never used these weapons during the war, uh, but they just had them just in case. Like another another card in the deck of total war weaponry. Mm-hmm. It's good to have. It's good to have. <laughs> Uh, And this was actually what a lot of people thought after the war. Because after the Second World War, many of the great powers of the world began their own biological weapons program, realizing that it's better to have one and not need it than need it and not have one. (laughs) Especially since it was easier and cheaper to develop than nuclear weapons. Like, immediately after the war, only America has the nuke. And they have, like, two or three of them. 
and it's hard to make, it's difficult to make, but anyone, anyone can sort of like culture smallpox. Yeah. It's a lot easier. During the 50s and 60s, though, a lot of these programs were shut down as a humanitarian gesture. However, it's assumed that many nations to this day still operate some just in secret. You know, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. <laughs> well, this is, yeah. the, this is the belief that these programs operate on. Yes, very much so. There are accusations that America had and is still using biologic weapons. Mm -hmm. For example, the People's Republic of China and North Korea both accused the U.S. of testing biological weapons during the Korean War. Uh, and Cuba claims that the U.S. used to sabotage their crops and livestock. However, it's the middle of the Cold War. Propaganda is afoot everywhere. <laughs> like, is this true? I don't know. Yeah, we don't really... There, like, there, there definitely is evidence about the United States using bioweapons during the Korean War. There is evidence. There is evidence. But, but we don't know. We don't know for sure. We don't know 100% about everything. Yeah. Um... I hate I hate the Cold War. Like as an historian, I hate the Cold War because like there's so much propaganda. Mm, really even things that like are true can sound fake. Yeah. Uh, and even things that sound fake are true. Yeah. So it's just like I don't know. However, both the U.S. and the Soviets did develop biological weapons just in case. Although there's no evidence that they used them like in a wide scale effect. But knowing the CIA and the KGB, I am 100% certain that they did use them uh, and still are today. In 1972, however, the UN signed the Biological and Toxin Weapons Act that fixed the loopholes of the previous Geneva Convention, banning the use of biological weapons entirely, something that the Soviet Union immediately ignored despite signing it. They developed something called Biopreparat mm -hmm. uh, near the Aral Sea. And we didn't actually know about its existence until the fall of the Soviet Union. And also some defectors like right around the fall of the Soviet Union. A lot of things happened at the same time. But we do know that in 1975, they accidentally released an aerosol gas infected with smallpox, leading to a small smallpox epidemic in the villages around the research facility. And Russia, we didn't know about this. Russia and Ukraine is really bad at keeping things contained. <laughs> and today... Uh, smallpox actually still exists in the in the Russian Federation and in the US just waiting, <laughs> just hanging out. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely not being used for biological weaponry. Wink. Um, yeah, it's it's a little bit um, uh, concerning yeah. <laughs> that the, it has been eradicated, <laughs> but it's still present in both American and Russian labs. Yeah. The, Somebody's they, like, just like like this, like waiting to they open have, they have the a windows. Big, they have a big red button to just like release smallpox yeah. <laughs> in the ventilation system. The reason why they keep it is for like partially like a weird ethical concern. It's like, do we have a right to eliminate smallpox? Um, Interesting. Yeah, I would say yes. But also another ethical concern about like if by like weird freak coincidence, that's probably not going to happen. But like if it happens, like smallpox just appears again, like by def like a defrosting snowman or something, um, or like a dead animal like accidentally mutates smallpox again. Like nothing, nothing like this is probably going to happen. But just in case, mm -hmm. it's good to have smallpox stored in like a secure container so that you can like analyze it. You can make, you can study it again. And you can. I mean, you, you could sort of, like, probably easily it. inoculate it from whatever animal has it. Yes, but, like, this is also... I don't know the reasoning behind it, but, like, there, there are reasons why... 
they keep it that aren't just for biological warfare reasons. They are extraordinarily heavily secured, though. I looked into this. They are like they are military bases around them hmm. because they do not want like potential terrorists getting a hold mm-hmm. of this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we can cure it. We eradicated it once. We probably could do it again. But like, if if bioterrorists got a hold of smallpox and released it in like a very like rural poor population that like aren't vaccinated against it, no one's vaccinated against it now anymore. Where like medical assistance would be like difficult to reach in a quick time. It could still kill a significant amount of people. So, you know, it's very heavily secured. However, thankfully, it's legal to make biological weapons out of it. It's illegal to make biological weapons out of anything these days. Bioweapons are super duper illegal. But why is that, you may ask? Why can't we use biological weapons to kill as many people as we want? Um, there's this idea that, like, war... You kill people in war. Like, that's part of the that's part of the gig. That's why you do war. You kill people. Um, but... A big reason why we ban it is because we have rules of war that both sides want to follow because if one side, if there's a rule of war like, hey, don't harm prisoners and both sides follow it, you know that like I can surrender to the enemy without being harmed. You know that like you, you will support those rules. And if one side breaks it, you no longer have a guarantee of that your guys are going to be safe anymore. And that's why, like, killing hostages is a war crime, things like that. Biological weapons and chemical weapons as well fall under these rules of war for a few reasons. Obviously, in war, you do want to harm your enemy. That's unavoidable. But if we can avoid smallpox outbreaks on innocent civilians, that's good for everyone. And obviously, today, war should be avoided at all costs, right? War, bad. This is, isn't a hot take, I think, for me to say. <laughs> Wars are bad. Which is why it's good that most wars these days aren't worth doing. Because when you go to war, you blow up infrastructure, you blow up buildings, uh, you blow up resource extractors, and as you conquer land, you destroy the land that you conquer. Uh, And it costs a lot of money, costs a lot of resources and lives, and the cost isn't worth it. It's the, the, the balance of going to war is never in the favor of war. It's much more worth to just like trade for it or like create your own system of getting the resources you want. But you know a weapon that doesn't destroy cities or infrastructure? Biological weapons. More generally known as unconventional weapons, because chemical weapons do this as well. The problem with these weapons is that they can be too effective, in that it will kill the population, but leave infrastructure and buildings intact. And that if using them was normalized, if nations just could use these weapons as part of like their arsenal, it would shift the cost of war to maybe being worth doing again. The, the calculus of going to war would suddenly be like, hey, maybe war is actually profitable to do again. And we do not want that to happen. That is the reason why chemical and biological weapons are sometimes used by dictators against their own population, because it lets you get rid of troublemakers while leaving the towns and villages intact, ready for new loyal settlers. An example of this happening was in the Rhodesian Bush War, where cholera was used to kill over 800 insurgents. Although this didn't really affect the outcome of the war itself, but... It's an example of it happening. And this is also why when dictators around the world use chemical weapons or biological weapons against their own population or what have you, the outside world typically does its utmost to harm the faction that's using them, to sort of shift the balance back into it not being worth it. Like, I know it's very effective, but you're gonna like lose connection with all of the outside world, you're gonna lose a lot of money. Even though the weapon is effective, Still shouldn't use it, it's going to cost too much. It's not worth it. 
And this has kind of happened already as well. During the Gulf War in 1991, Iraq admitted to having created 19,000 liters of concentrated botulinum toxin, half of which was already inside of bombs, something that, as it was suspected, Iraq got like massive sanctions, but they admitted it, they turned it over, most of it, uh, and like that's a, that's a way to sort of like get around the sanctions, being like, hey, we did it, like we own up to it, don't sanction us, please. <laughs> and they didn't actually use it, thankfully. So didn't really happen. Fun fact though, not all of that botulinum toxin has been accounted for. <laughs> a lot of it is missing, but thankfully it does deteriorate over time, so as long as someone isn't making any more of it, we're all safe. We're all gonna be good. Thankfully today, the UN and most nations around the world strongly condemn biological weapons and state-sponsored biological warfare is not a major concern anymore. However, concern today is more centered around bioterrorism, because as we mentioned, Making, making dangerous chemicals or viruses or bacteria is a lot easier than making nuclear weapons, for example. Although thankfully, in a weird way thankfully, terrorists are sticking to making bombs instead, which more often than not has the effect of exploding them as well. <laughs> now, I mentioned bioterrorism, but it hasn't really happened too much, uh, mostly because it's, it's sort of difficult to do effectively, and there are many other alternatives for terrorists who do want to do harm, like uh, using chemical agents instead, or using conventional weaponry. It's a lot easier than, than working with like biological agents. All right, so we just talked about the history of bio-warfare. Um, and now for my last section, I want to talk about conspiracies and concerns around mm -hmm. biological warfare. Because there's a lot of modern concerns around it. Um, and most of it stem from, from long-standing trends in the international scene, including deep mistrust between countries, animosities, nationalism, and, prop and propaganda campaigns. Yeah. For example, most of us have probably heard some variation of a COVID <laughs> conspiracy, yes. uh, whether about its origin, its spread, or treatment. Mm -hmm. 5G towers are spreading COVID, yes. Yeah. And among the theories about its origin, there are two quite popular ones claiming that COVID is a bioweapon. Uh, the first one is popular in the West and is that the virus has been leaked from a Wuhan laboratory. And the second one, a theory popular in China, is that the virus originated from the United States. Oh, um, the blame game. <laughs> I see. You... It's your fault. Okay, um, fun. I'll talk about each in turn and I'll start with the first one. So the P4 lab in Wuhan has been previously questioned for its safety standards and, and even its necessity, with international experts sharing concerns about possible leakage of pathogens and even its use for the development of bioweapons. After the lockdown in Wuhan in late January 2020, a US newspaper apparently drew a link between the novel virus and China's alleged covert biological warfare program, and scientists from the Indian Institute of Technology claimed that they found four unique inserts of key structural proteins of HIV-1 in the coronavirus, um, suggesting that it had been genetically engineered. Okay. The paper was then withdrawn, citing a need to reanalyze the data. Uh-huh. Uh, because they got to them. The man. <laughs> the um, establishment. I mean, no, it, it just doesn't pharma. have... It doesn't have... It doesn't have the inserts. Calm down. Okay. Um, but... Even even though the paper was retracted, the, the the you know the fact that people were drawing this link and, and saying these things 
was met with indignation by one of the scientists in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, who apparently made a post telling people to shut their dirty mouths. I saw that, I think. I actually saw that. Uh, which was that a tweet? It was, um, it was, I think it was on, on Twitter because they don't have Twitter, well, but it was like, like a like Chinese, Twitter. Chi- yeah. Chinese equivalent. Um, and this of course didn't help their case in the face of conspiracy theorists, because uh, it doesn't sound good when you yeah. tell your, crit- your critics to you shut, shut their dirty shut mouths. Shut your dirty mouth. Um, Stinky. And this was also not helped by China's swift implementation of a law on biosecurity and its incorporation in the national security system. Um, apparently, this was taken by some commentators in the West as a tacit admission of guilt, when really it would probably more reasonably be interpreted as a way to lessen the risk of biological warfare attacks by other nations. Yeah. The Chinese version of the conspiracy theory also started circulating pretty much as soon as the news broke out of the new virus ravaging the population. Uh, the theory can be traced back to one message that circulated on the Chinese social media WeChat, and it linked the origins of the virus to the first China-hosted military multi-sport event that involved the participation of thousands of athletes from around the world. The message reminded that American athletes were present and also pointed out something that is really um, is really quite fucked up. It said, of course, some international athletes came from Africa, where infectious diseases frequently break out. And what's funny about this is that... Just the, blaming no, Africans. No, but like, listen, what's funny, it, like, it, it doesn't mention Africa later on. <laughs> they just sprinkle some racism in there. Because like, ah! they they heavily imply that yeah. it was the United States that brought yeah. the virus could have over. Been, could have been Africans, though. No, no, they you just like... they are. No, it's totally the Americans. But you know how Africans <laughs> are also... <laughs> Just like it's infectious so and dirty. Holy Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that. Hate that. In any case, yeah, the post heavily implies that the virus was carried out or were, was carried into China by American athletes and reminds readers of previous biowarfare attacks carried out by the United States, as well as of the current trade war between China and the United States. They're mm-hmm. like, I'm not saying anything, but <laughs> the timing is the interesting. The timing though. is interesting. It's just very interesting that there's a trade war right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I, I hear that argument exactly for why it's coming from China too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This conspiracy theory, this conspiracy theory is so good because you can just like replace the labels a little bit. Yeah, and you, you, that's it. Yeah, you're good. And also, the post like incorrectly claims that the virus has an incubation period of two to three months. So it claims that people would be infected during the sports event, and then an outbreak would take place around the spring festival when large numbers of people return home from for the Chinese New Year. Mm. So I'm not really sure like if they didn't know a lot about, about the virus back then, but like this claim is a little bit incorrect because mm. it has a much shorter incubation time. So I don't. Yeah, it has like two or three days yeah, or something. Well, uh, up to fourteen days, but definitely not two two yeah. three months. Um, so I don't know what's <laughs> up with that, but anyway, they say that. And uh, then I want to talk a little bit about the historical context, because obviously when we talk about biowarfare conspiracies, it's really important to look back at the history and think, okay, well, why, why are they so concerned about it? Where does this come from? Um, and China is a nation that has suffered many biowarfare attacks. As mentioned. As mentioned by you, both prior to and during the Second World War at the hands of Japan and the United States. Um, <laughs> So, bio, as you said, bioweapons in the form of uh, plague-infested fleas were deployed in at least a dozen large-scale field tests throughout China, and that has led to the suffering and deaths of hundreds of thousands of civilians. I think it's around 580,000 yeah. people that died 
And this is, this is relevant here. The United States made a deal with Japan to grant them immunity from war crimes prosecution. Yes. Uh, with the goal of obtaining scientific data obtained through human experimentation so as to advance the United States' own biowarfare program. Yes. So even though the United States, like, you know, Americans weren't the one, like, driving the planes and dropping the bombs, yeah, they were they gave them, directly involved yeah. in this and played a, played a big part. All, like, we talked a little bit about that in our episode about space medicine, mm-hmm. but, like, it's really, it really is completely fucked up, like, to yeah. the highest extent that Unit 731... As far as I know, like almost no one as part of that unit ever faced any consequences. Yeah. Like at least at least the Nazis were hung and like prosecuted yeah. at least. And the, the entirety of Unit 731 just basically got away. And a lot of like the high-ranking military in Japan also just got away with it. And yeah. even today, denying the war crimes that Japan did in China is like pretty common in Japan. Yeah. Japan, they, sort your shit out. And also, I mean, the United States never issued any sort of public statement no. like mentioning or, you know, like apologizing no. for its cover up of Japan's yeah. war crimes. Wait, um, you, you gotta, I mean, the fight against communism. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you can get you can do Cause, anything because that's because that's what they do. It, it, you know, the, they had this trial, the Khabarovsk trial, um, and the Soviets tried to publicize the evidence from this trial, and that that's where they presented evidence of uh, of Japan's um, war crimes and use of bio weaponry, and the West just dismissed it as communist propaganda, and that was the end of it. That was it. Like um, uh, like people like honestly, it's after like this is a thing in the history community. It was like. The, the the dissemination of information around the Japanese war crimes only really took mainstream hold after the fall of communism. Because now we don't have to cover it up anymore. Now yeah. we can like be now everyone can like sort of like talk about it a bit more openly. But like even in like the fifties, sixties and seventies and eighties even, talking about Japanese war crimes could could get you a sort of like commie stamp, mm-hmm. which is which in the West was like good luck having a job now. <laughs> It's it's really, like inhuman yeah. to like like you can hate communism. I don't care. Like you can hate communism as much as you want. But like the, the second you sort of like protect war criminals that have killed hundreds of thousands of people, that's fucking bonkers. Sorry, I got a carried away. You got a little a little heated. I got heated. I'm angry at anti-communists from the 1950s. Yeah. yeah, and I mean you know after after the Soviet Union fell in the 90s. It, I mean, like everybody knows this this happened. Yeah. Um. Everybody knows it wasn't just communist propaganda, so they really should take some accountability. Right. <laughs> like, is that a weird thing to say? Like, take some accountability for war crimes. But it's the Chinese who are demanding it, and they're communists. Okay. Yeah, and the other thing that I was gonna mention is that there's also evidence that the United States was employing bacterial weapons against both military and civilian targets. Um, against China and Korea during the Korean War in the 50s. But we said this before, it's um, it's not really confirmed. We don't really know. Like, it, you know, it's, it's just not confirmed. There's yeah. evidence, but it's not confirmed. Yeah. Um, but mean, it, they almost certainly did, though. Like, the, they whole, the yeah. atrocities in yeah. Korea But are... I just don't want to say because... Yeah, of course. Yeah. But so, you know, looking at the historical context, it's not surprising that... <laughs> theories of biowarfare emerging from the United States are common in China and yeah. that they have like really like strict biosecurity laws like mm-hmm. if there's anybody who is justified in being afraid of like biowarfare attacks it's China it's China 
Um, but COVID is definitely not the first outbreak to be met with conspiracy thinking or conspirational thinking. In fact, conspiracy theories are very common during times of crisis. Um, in the 80s, the Soviet Committee for State Security claimed that HIV was a biological weapon developed by the United States. Um, while in the United States, there was a widespread belief that HIV was a conspiracy meant to kill black people, which led to non-adherence to preventative measures like condoms and pre-exposure prophylaxis. During the Zika outbreak in 2015, there were speculations that the virus was caused by genetically modified mosquitoes and that it was used by governments to purposefully kill people. So, mm. like I said, I this heard is, that one, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just really common. And now we can move a little bit from the historical context because I want to talk a bit about the reasons why conspiracy theories emerge on like at the individual level. Like why is somebody or why why would somebody be attracted to fringe theories during times of uh, social distress? Yeah. And the main reason that is cited for the popularization of conspiracy theories is that they provide explanations for scary events of large magnitude. People are especially drawn to conspiracy thinking in times of uncertainty. People hate not feeling safe, they yes. hate not feeling secure, they want to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Conspiracy theories are also very popular among people with lower levels of education. And it's important to note here, I'm, I don't mean unintelligent people, yeah. I just mean people who haven't been taught how to distinguish between good and bad sources of information. Mm. Then there's a need of control. People like to feel safe, they like to feel like they have power over their lives. And while conspiracy theories about the origin of COVID, for example, like they don't necessarily provide direct control, they at least allow people to feel like they have some information that at least explains why they're not in control. Yeah. Um, lastly, there's a social motive for why conspiracy theories are popular, and that is people's desire to feel good about themselves as individuals and also in relation to the larger group. And what makes you feel good about yourself? It's it's feeling like you have access to information or knowledge that other people don't have. Yeah. And it's been found that people who gravitate towards this kind of thinking also often have a need to feel unique, to stand out from the crowd. And so they gravitate away from mainstream explanations and more towards fringe theories. Uh, nobody wants to be a sheep. No. <laughs> but especially these people. This also happens at the group level. People sometimes have an overinflated sense of importance about the groups that they belong to, as well as maybe a sense of those groups being unappreciated or underestimated. So in having this kind of beliefs, people can continue to maintain that the groups that they belong to are good and moral and upstanding, or that they're victimized. Um, and that other groups are evil or they're trying to take away their rights or whatever. Fun. A little messed up. I do, I do like that, like, obviously people want to have answers, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think this is something called, like, the proportionality bias mm -hmm. that people... Because, like, a, a virus outbreak is, like, a, a random event mm -hmm. that happens for no... For really no reason. Mm -hmm. It's just, like, a biological mechanism that just happens. Well, unless it leaks from a lab. Well, of course. Well, that's, well, that's what I mean. Like, but it's it's such a sort of... It, it literally is a thing that just happens. And that's not a fun explanation for like yeah. a huge event that like changes history. Yeah. We don't like random Pe events. Exactly. We like to know that things happen yeah. for a reason. Like big, if, if it's a big event, it has to have a big reason yeah. behind it. And I yeah. feel like that's why people go into the whole like... Yeah, like the Bill government Gates is trying to exactly. follow it, my China brain. released it, it's made in a lab, it's yeah. like 5G, like they're... Yeah, it's the lizard people. Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes sense to me too. And I think it's really interesting to kind of have you know, these different levels of explanations. Like, there's a historical context. Yeah. Um, then there there's are, individual yeah. reasons. There are social reasons. Mm. There are like, personal 
um, like existential reasons. Yeah. Because um, I really, yeah, I think I think it's so complex why people buy into conspiracy theories. Why and also like you know with anti-vaxxing, it's mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah. Mm. I wonder, like, what if, what if it's not? I I know COVID isn't a bioweapon. Okay. It's, it's not. <laughs> All right. But what if it is? Uh huh. What about it? Would that would that be messed up or what? <laughs> I mean, what if a horse was really small? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. If it was by a weapon, we know probably. No, but that's that's not it. Would it change the way that we treat it? I really do wonder. Like the people who think it's a bioweapon, like it's, like let's say it is. Like, what would you do differently? How would this change actually? <laughs> what would how, you do? Yeah. How how does this actually change what? we are doing in the present well i feel like people maybe would want like consequences for the perpetrators maybe it's It's such a like political fan fiction at that point just like i i wish we could take revenge on those damn americans that came here to do sports just like what no come on well i mean obviously i don't have a really good overview but it just seems that people who usually think that it's a bioweapon are also like anti-vaxxers or anti-maskers so it's not like it's not just wanting revenge; it's also like not wanting to follow yeah. measures. So I don't really know like where are you like they're yeah. getting with it. <laughs> this has been our episode about bioweapons, though. We reached the modern day, included COVID, because every medical outlet these days has to mention COVID. Here's the thing: we live in uncertain times. I tried to look for other examples yeah. um, that were not COVID, and it was impossible. It was yeah. literally impossible. Because I'm sure that there are conspiracy theories about, like, smallpox and about... The Spanish flu. Yeah. And I guess, like, HIV and Zika. But it was so hard, so hard to find anything else. Because everything is just, like, buried under COVID. (laughs) Just mountains and mountains of of COVID COVID articles, yeah. Um, 5G COVID. 5G COVID. Bill Gates COVID. Microchip. How have you liked today's episode? Um, It was quick. It was short and quick. Short yeah. and sweet. Short and sweet. We usually do well. Sweet. Well, I think I think anthrax is actually is actually sweet. So yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, we usually do like three hours, and now we're at one hour twenty three minutes. This is gonna be interesting to edit. We might end up with like forty five minute episode. That's fine. Um, People enjoy shorter episodes too. Yeah. How did you like the episode? I liked it quite a lot. Very well. Talking about Unit 731 and their weird stuff all over again. I really like it when we come back to topics we've talked about before from a different perspective. Yeah. Um, We're definitely going to mention Unit 731 again. Yeah. The weird, the fucked up things that they did in medical history. No Nazis this time, though. I tried looking for it. And, like, there were examples of, like, you know, poisoning wells and stuff. But, mm-hmm. like, not they, a huge, like, mass yeah. movement they weren't, of things. They weren't faffing about with bioweapons. They were, like... No, they just went for guns. For guns and gas, yeah. Yeah, for guns and gas. Chemical warfare. Yeah. Uh, but that's a that's an episode for another day. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Guys, if you like the episode, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Yes. It helps us so much. We'd appreciate that. If not, um, leave a rating on Spotify. That helps a lot too. Please do. Or on uh, Apple Podcasts. It's yeah. free and it does help podcast. Yeah. Otherwise, we mm-hmm. hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter. <laughs> on uh, uh, Pod, <laughs> Or on twitch.tv slash leechfest, where we play video games every Wednesday. And more. <laughs> well, it is every Wednesday, and then when we have time. Yeah. 
Um, yes, otherwise, we hope you enjoyed the episode and we will see you next time. Bye.